and invite all of us to open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. This is a big God passage. This is a text that we're going to look at, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, that gives us a vision of God. Right now, with all that has been happening that has tested our faith, both uh, on a citywide level, state level, country level, and then world level, this has brought us to a place of dependence on God, has it not? And with that dependence, we've had to search out our own hearts to find out if we really trust him. And during this time, I want to challenge all of you from the text, from the word of God, that we need a big God. And the big God is the God that's described here in scripture. Someone once challenged me about my evangelism. I remember I took a, it was an evangelism sort of seminar where we were training and we were going to go out and give the word of God. And my emphasis in my approach for evangelism was to share the beauty of Christ and how he is compelling. And I also wanted to promote the free grace of the gospel. All of those things are true, but This one person that was in a dialogue with me about my approach for evangelism challenged me to also bring first the law of God before the grace of God, law before grace, because he said that you can share the free gift of grace, the beauty of Christ all you want. But if someone does not first see their sin where they fall short of the glory of God, they'll never know anything's wrong. That needs to be made right. Talking about the free gift of grace that comes, but it comes freely to those who are recognizing that they have sinned, recognizing their need for repentance. And that wartime theologian of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that if we neglect repentance in our gospel message, if we, if we basically dumb down the gospel or cheapen the gospel. It's offering cheap grace. Grace with no repentance is cheap. It's not even real saving grace. Someone needs to understand first that they're in violation of God's law. What do I mean by that? Well, actually it's being in violation of God's holiness because God's law is God's holiness written down. That's what we're talking about. Big God who saves us by his saving grace. A child walking aimlessly in the woods won't know anything is wrong unless they know they're going in the wrong direction. Someone whose vision is failing, uh, maybe mine is a little bit, you know, in need of some things, uh, but someone whose vision is failing first needs to be diagnosed that it's failing for them to know that they're going blind and they need a corrective measure. They were blind, they need to see, but they need to know something's wrong before they're going to make something right. And that's the approach of our text in front of us. Let me read Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 24. Follow as I read. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom 
and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Preaching a big God, preaching a God who established a law that exposes sin could sound harsh. Don't people just need God to give them a little help? Do people really need to be intimidated by God, intimidated by his word, his law? Doesn't God just need to be automatically approachable to everyone so that everyone can freely come to him in their time of need? I guess it's important to understand who God is before we even try to answer this question. That's what the text is doing here. It's painting a picture of who God is. Big God, not a lesser God, not a lower God. People will reduce God down to the genie in the bottle that we summon from time to time according to our whim. Whatever we think we need in the moment. This lesser God, this lesser vision of God was pretty marketable over the last 25 years. Pretty palatable for everyone where they could kind of take or leave God as they wanted to casually. This is a God that attracts a lot of people to church because it's a non-threatening God. But God is a consuming fire. God is someone not to be trifled with. Think in terms of his authority, starting from the lowest scale. Let's compare God's authority to a personal friend. Let's say you were to offend your personal best friend who knows all your weaknesses and you, oops, you say something dumb or you say something that is harmful, but that person knows you and they give you all the grace in the world to make it right or maybe they just cover it in love. Okay, you're driving down the road and you're driving down the Seward Highway and you know, skirting along, looking, looking to the right, looking to the left, and you kind of swerve over in a lane haphazardly without thinking, and you cut a state trooper off. How's that going to go for you? Well, the authority just ramped up, and the consequences are greater. Well, what about you're in court for what you did, and you're standing there, and suddenly you get snarky, and, and you, you kind of go back and forth with the judge and offend him. Well, suddenly you find yourself landed in contempt, Let's go to the White House for a second. Just imagine yourself walking into the Oval Office. There you are. You're standing before the president. And whatever you think about the president, I happen to like him. And and, and you're standing there and you start to say something, you know, just off the cuff. And you start to smack of some treason. You're a little bit treasonous in that moment. How's that going to go for you? It's the authority that measures the consequence. That's the point. 
So what about creator God? He made you, he foreknew you, he thought of you before you were created in your mother's womb. Then he knit you together. Then he put you here in time and space. You didn't have anything to do with when and where you were born. And here you are and you are who you are and you're born in sin and you've sinned and you suddenly grow to an age where you calculate your sin that you're going to do and you do it anyway. And you've offended a holy, perfect infinite creator, Lord of the universe, God. What are the consequences of an offense like that on that scale? That's how we need to think in terms of being saved. Until you understand the level at which you've sinned, you cannot understand the immeasurable love and grace that you've been given or the offer of grace that is there for you to still receive if you've not yet received it. The higher the authority, the greater the offense, but the bigger your God is, the bigger your grace becomes. Over the past quarter century, we've heard preachers preach a small non-threatening God that gives you zero accountability here and zero accountability for when you go to meet him face to face. Right now, our world seems so fragile, doesn't it? Everything went topsy-turvy. We're all on high alert and rightfully so. We're all thinking through a plan to keep ourselves as clean as we can from a virus that is so threatening. Job security our economy, how we're going to supply for our family. All of these things are in our minds. They're uppermost in our thinking. Will my job restart? When will things become normal? Our world is nervous and the smaller God that's been preached for the last 25 years will not do, will it? That's not a real God. We need the Bible's God. We need the true God. We need a God who is Lord over everything, who can wipe out this virus at his will, with a thought. We need a big God. How do we make our vision of God grow? Because God is as big as he is, and he's, his bigness is beyond what we can imagine. But how do we make our vision or our version of God grow? We grow by learning of who he is from scripture. Our vision of God grows by scripture, by understanding God's law. God's law, as I said before, is his holiness written down. The word holiness is a great word in terms of the bigness of God. It means God is set apart from his creation. There's the creature and then there's the creator. We are the creature, he is the creator. And there's a big chasm between the creator and the creature. He's made all things to glorify him. But all things were made in time and space. God has no beginning. He's wholly other. He is in essence different than everything else because he's creator. He's awesome. His law reflects who he is. All of the things that we are supposed to not violate reflect God's holiness. It's an extension of his holiness. It's the standard where there's no gray area. There's no margin for error. It's the opposite of postmodern thought. God is not something that's malleable or like mercury that we um, are trying to grasp and is fluid that we just conjure up in our own mind. God is fixed in who he is. 
This is the impassibility of God. This is the immutability of God. God is who he is, period. We as creation react to who God is. And in the same way, we, we react to his law according to who he is. His law not only reflects who he is, but it also reflects who you are and who you are not. It shows us all of our imperfections. It is the sun that shines brightly on our skin that shows scars and and different things that are wrong with us. Imperfections. It's like looking in the mirror, coming face to face with God shines back our sin to us. It cuts us down to size. You say, well, that sounds really cruel. Don't you know how hard my life is, how difficult things are? Well, I understand, but God is who he is. And we need to get to God right now. We need to get to God in our prayer life, get to God in his word, get to God for comfort. How do we get to God? Well, we allow the word of God to cut us down to size so that we can repent of our sins and seek God with a pure heart. Being willing to repent is a grace and we need the law to bring us to grace. The pandemic shows us how risky and fragile life is, but how much more fragile is our life once we're in heaven, standing before the Lord? Everything rides on that moment, doesn't it? Our response to God now will determine how he responds to us in the future. When you stand before him, when you come face to face with the Lord, we need the Lord. We need to know that we are vulnerable once we're before him. And the key question you can ask yourself for how vulnerable you really are is, By which standard will you be judged when you stand before him? Will you be judged by God's law or will you be judged by God's grace? You're going to be judged by one of the two when you stand before him. If by the law, you'll fall short. If by grace, you'll be wonderfully received. Either you will fall flat in paralyzing terror or you will be received with extraordinary Joy. The book of Revelation talks about whether people are judged by law or grace when they stand before him. Revelation chapter 20 says the books were opened. Revelation 20 verse 12. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you have books that are records of those who are judged by the law, those who spurned God in this life, those who were unwilling to be cut down by the law, those who, who, balked at God's standard, and then you will have those who repented and received grace who were in the book of life. It says the the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Revelation 13, 8 talks about those who are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world according to the lamb who was slain. Those are either in one book or there will be those who are in another book. And we want to be written in the Lamb's book of life. We want to be judged by grace. Our text before us leads us to this judgment by grace position. 
it actually assumes that the author is talking to Christians, to believers who are under grace. They've seen the law of God. They've understood their sin. They've repented and they're in grace. But it's also a call kind of as a gut check to say, am I in grace? Have I been cut down by the law first and foremost? Have I seen my sin? Have I turned to this big God to receive grace that only he can give? That's what this text is doing. It's actually a call for believers to make sure they're not Esau. Remember in verse, verses 16 and 17 of Hebrews 12, last week we were talking about Esau. And we're talking about how he's the picture of compromise. He's the picture of someone who thought he had the birthright. He thought he was going to be right with God. He thought his father was going to bless him. But Isaac, instead of blessing Esau, had already, through Jacob's deception, blessed Jacob. And so when Esau came for the blessing from his father, though he sought it with tears, there was no blessing to be found. This is the picture of standing on the pivot point of whether you're going to go to heaven or hell, whether you are truly God's child or not. The author of Hebrews wants to break through self-deception. He wants to encourage those who are in grace to keep running the race, but he also wants to warn those who think that they're right with God, but they really aren't. They're that aimless child who needs to be told, hey, little Tommy, little Joey, you're walking the wrong way in the woods. You're getting lost. You're going to be in peril. Turn back the other way to the right path. That's what this text is. It's a warning for people to examine themselves and to find out that they truly are in grace. Don't be Esau. Don't be hard-hearted and unrepentant. Verse 16, those who are caught in sexual immorality or unholiness, don't be that person. Be walking on the right path. So verse 18 picks up with this. Verse 18, I think, assumes that there are people who are floundering, people that are feeling the father's discipline, feeling the pressure of life and are going, oh, I don't know which way I'm going to go. I don't know if I'm going to follow the right path or not. And so what the author does is brings things back to basics. He brings the church back to the law. He brings them back to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God first gave the 10 commandments through Moses, to Moses and through Moses, to that first generation of the Israelites, the Jews who'd been released from Egypt, who are beginning to wander through the wilderness. But early in that wilderness wandering, they encountered God. They came to the presence of God and they were confronted by God's law and God's voice voice. God was speaking to them. And throughout this text and section this week and next week, you'll see again and again where God is speaking. God is, his voice is ringing in their ears. So let's look first of all at the first point, which is to be judged by the law. This wilderness generation was coming face to face with God and they were coming face to face with his holiness and they were coming face to face with God's law. They were being confronted by God's law and they were under that judgment at this point. Verse 18 says, for you have not come to what may be touched 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Stop there. Mount Sinai is not mentioned in this, in this text, but it is very apparent that that's what the author is talking about. He's applying Sinai to them. He's saying, think about it. You're not in the situation that they were in. God was unapproachably holy to them in that moment. He was speaking to them. He was graciously warning them from the mountain, but his unapproachability was what was highlighted in this scene. This is when God was giving commandments. He was giving the 10 commandments. This is the Mosaic covenant that the children of Israel needed to agree to obey and follow. They needed to follow it perfectly. So there's a difference that's going to be built between this situation being judged by the law versus being judged by grace. What does this look like? Well, for first generation Jews, God is unapproachable. For new covenant believers, they are going to be cast as those who have gone to a different mountain where God is fully approachable, where they've gained full access This says that the believers that are being addressed, they've not come to what may be touched. They, as New Testament Christians, we aren't those who are standing at the foot of a physical mountain, Mount Sinai, that we could touch. Now, for those people back in that day, if they touched the mountain, it was instant execution. It meant automatic death. We don't know exactly where Mount Sinai is or where it is geographically. We know that it was early in the wilderness wandering, so it had to be close to where they had begun. It was early in the the 40 years. And the Jews were instructed not to touch it. Though they could touch it, they were instructed not to do that. Majestic holiness was what was on display and it was terrifying to them. Fire, darkness, you see this in the text, gloom. It was tempestuous. There were increasingly loud trumpet blasts that I think were from the innumerable angels that are cited from Deuteronomy's account of this experience. Deuteronomy 33, 2 says, 10,000 of holy ones were there in flaming fire. And so shofar blasts were coming from this mount, Mount Sinai, in increasing loudness. But though this voice was coming out of God's holiness, there was grace even in this voice. Exodus 19, one through nine is where I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to. You can see it on the screen probably as well. Exodus 19, five sets the stage for God's arrival. It says, now, therefore, if you will Indeed, obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. This is God's voice to Moses, to the elders there, and to the Israelites, saying, you're my treasured possession. He's warning them not to touch the mountain. Don't come any closer. He's saying, you're mine because the earth, for all of the earth is mine. There's grace here in the law. There's grace in this condition. If you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which is the promise that they were making together, hear the word of God. Believe this by faith is what he's saying. 
No one could keep the law perfectly, even in the Mosaic Covenant. To be saved, you had to receive it by faith. And you'll see this as this text plays out. Exodus 19.8, it says, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. In the next verse, the Lord, he inserts the key element of their obedience, which is faith. Look at um, verse 9, Exodus 19, 9. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud and the people that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also, here it is, believe you forever. Believing what Moses said was a way to say they're believing in God. They've heard the word of God and they're believing in God. What they heard, though, they needed to heed. They needed to follow this instruction of consecration or setting themselves apart. And we see this in Exodus 19, 10 and 14, 10 through 14. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Does some of this sound familiar? Being washed, being set apart from things. And be ready for the third day. For the thir- on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care. Do not go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, shot through with an arrow. So if someone runs up to touch the mountain, they're going to die. If somebody goes after that person that's running up to touch the mountain to tackle them before they touch it, they're going to also die by stoning or by being shot with an arrow. Your animal starts to go up to the mountain. You're saying, I can't lose my livestock. Not that I love my cow. I need to eat my cow. It goes up to the edge of the mountain. You tackle it and the animal dies and you die. They were very, very concerned about this moment they were trembling at it it says no hand shall touch him verse 13 but he shall be stoned or shot whether beast or man he shall not live when the trumpet sounds a long blast they shall come up the mountain so moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments they're not touching the mountain they're just allowed because they're washed because they've gone through what they what they need to go through ceremonially they can come up to the mountain. He wanted them to hear his voice, but he did not want them to violate his holiness. Do you see the difference? Hearing God, but hearing God within a parameter, with a limit. You can't cross a certain threshold. That's an important concept to grasp here to know what's going on. Verse 21 um, says that, that God was meeting them with grace in the midst of the tempest. God's warning them not to become fascinated with his holiness. See, the temptation here is to come all the way up and then to cross the line and say, I'm terrified, but I'm so terrified that I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued so much so that I'm tempted. I want a little bit more. That's what God is warning them not to do. Approach me in the way that I've told you to approach me and don't allow your temptation to take over where you want to take things in hand and basically trump God in the moment. It's like the moth to the flame. 
touching the mountain that you should not touch. So this is grace. The Lord said to Moses, verse 21, go down and warn the peoples. Listen, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Oh, I want to look. I'm so curious. It's like when you're terrified of something and you want to stay away from it. But the, the fact that you're so terrified, it tempts you to want to see what's there. To, to go up to that terrifying person or to watch that terrifying thing. And God is saying, no, no, that's not it. Hear my word, believe on me, trust me. Don't try to do something that you should not do. Deuteronomy 4.11, what did this look like? Uh, Deuteronomy is the second law. It's, that's what Deuteronomos means. It's where Moses rewrote what he had written in Exodus again for the people right before they were going to go into the promised land. He's recounting what happened, Deuteronomy 4.11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of, the, to the heart of heaven. Fire was going up to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. It was very tempting to see more than they should see. Hebrews 12, 19, back to our text, it highlights God's voice. Look at this. It says, in the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They're begging that, that this thunderous voice would stop. I mean, they're, they're tempted to go farther in, but they're begging for the voice to stop. It was overwhelming them. What does that mean? Deuteronomy 5, 23 through 27 recounts their experience. It says that as soon as they heard, as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, the Lord, our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice. Here it is out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. That was amazing. That was amazing. They wanted to, they wanted to, to cross the line because they're actually hearing God and they're still alive. Most people, when they encounter God, they would just die immediately. This is a miracle. Verse 25, now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. So they're starting to, Back up a little bit. If we hear the voice of the Lord, our God, anymore, we shall die. So they begin to back away. They're being overwhelmed by God's voice for who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire of fire as we have and has still lived. Go near and hear all that the Lord, our God will say and speak. They're sending Moses back up the mountain to us, all that the Lord God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. So God's voice is God's presence. What is it like? Well, there were seismic tremors, deep darkness, lightning and fire rising to the top of Sinai, to the heart of the heaven, heart of heaven, Deuteronomy 4.11, celestial shofars blaring and Moses is speaking and God is answering Moses in thunder. People were trembling. Moses was trembling, the text says, not in the account in Exodus, but here in Hebrews, we find that Moses was even terrified. Look at verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Later, he would confront the Israelites for 
creating a golden calf. And it says in Deuteronomy 9, 19, that he was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure of the Lord. But I think this is more talking about the fact that Moses was terrified. Of course he was. Of course he was. What were they terrified of? Well, first and foremost, they're overwhelmed by the supernatural, by the, the, the amazement of thunder and lightning and fire that seemed that it would consume them if they got too close and it would. But they were terrified in a different way. According to Hebrews 12, they're terrified by the standard of the law. They were terrified in one sense of themselves being tempted to cross a law that God had created. This is the experience of all of us as believers. We live by grace. We want to walk by grace. We know we're saved by grace. But when we sin, if we acknowledge the guilt of our sin, it makes us shudder inside, doesn't it? When you sin in a way that looks like Esau, where you're crossing a line knowingly and you're weeping back to God and saying, God, forgive me. That's a terrifying place to be. It can be. If your heart isn't soft, if you don't really mean it, if you're kind of caught in the middle, not all the way trusting God by grace, but you're trusting your own law keeping, you're measuring yourself in terms of the law, you're measuring yourself in terms of what you think you can get away with this side of heaven. You want to go all the way to the edge of yourself and say, I know I'm still right with God, but I'm just going to fall away at this level. That's a terrifying place to be. And that's exactly where the Israelites were at this point in their belief. They'd just been complaining, wanting to go back to Egypt. They, they were now confronted by this terrifying God and, and, and they're tempted to cross a line. And if they cross the line, they will die. The implications of disobedience was terrifying to them. So God's law, God's voice was what they were afraid of. It was so terrifying that they felt like they couldn't endure it. Look at verse 20, Hebrews 12, verse 20, back up there. For they could not endure the order that was given. Verse 19, just backing up. It was God's voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. Don't tell us the law anymore. We can't take it. We can't endure this order. That even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. It's so terrifying. We've been terrified on a lesser scale, right? About touching things or not touching things. Don't touch your face. Don't do this. You know, you're walking by people in stores. Am I at six feet or four and a half feet? Wait, did you look at me? Did I just get something? And I'm not trying to um, say less, anything less about the virus. It's horrible. I prayed earlier for people who are... um, probably gasping for life because of this. It's scary. It is terrifying. This is a scary time in our culture, in our world, in our day to day. But it parallels this kind of fear where they were terrified by this standard, by this law that God had set. Please don't tell me anymore. I can't take it anymore. That's a person who knows that they are being judged by the law. Do you see that? That's not a person. They are not acting in faith at this point. They're acting in the flesh saying, uh, it's, 
It's enough. I can't take this. It's crushing me to hear the word at this point. The standard of the word of God about what I, what's required of me in holiness is too much for me to hear anymore. God, you are too big. You're too holy. I don't want you. That's what they're doing. They're begging for the pressure to stop. That's law is strict. It's inviolable. The law creates a level of insecurity, rightfully so. Proverbs 28, one says the wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked are running around even as if somebody's after them. They're paranoid. Even when nobody's really there. It says, but the righteous are as are bold as a lion. When you're judged by the law, you're running around paranoid. Somebody's after me. When you know that you're standing in grace, that you're judged by grace, you're judged through Christ, you're as bold as a lion. That's what we're talking about. God's law leaves no margin for error. Paul experienced the law of God in his life. He was a law keeper, the best of the best in law keeping. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, trained by Gamaliel. He knew that he was right with God, or he thought he did, by his law keeping until the Holy Spirit struck him down. His Sinai moment was on Damascus, the road to Damascus, where the bright light came and he heard the reverberating voice of God in his head. Why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you doing this to me? By persecuting the church, you're persecuting Christ. And through that experience, he was recalibrated to look at the law in a different way. And suddenly the law that he believed he was keeping to make himself right with God became an instrument of death that was showing him his sin. Second Corinthians 3, 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, it's a glory that shone on Moses' face. It's a glorious law, but he also called it the ministry of death. Galatians 3, 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's judged by the law. Judged by the law. Paul said in Romans 7, 9 through 11, I was once alive apart from the law, but the commandment came When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The law applied to someone who's not yet turned to grace, sees sin come to life in front of them. And he died in his heart. Said the very commandment that promised life, the achievement keeping life that he was falsely commending himself for became death to him. It proved death to me. He said, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me and through it killed me. The self-achievement lie was killing him and the law was exposing that. The force of the law is simply this. It makes God bigger to us. Now, God is as big as he is, but our vision of God grows when we see him through this standard holiness written down. 
Well, I want to quickly move us from law to grace. Look at verse 22. It says, indeed, so terrifying. I'm sorry, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. We're basically going from earth to heaven, from Sinai's mountain to Mount Zion. Now, Scripture teaches that Mount Zion was a physical mountain, a real mountain. It's the mountain which represents Jerusalem, the physical city that's there, Mount Zion. It's, it's a place that pictures the grace of the gospel because Christ died in Jerusalem. So we're moving from Mount Zion to the cross, from Old Testament, Old Covenant, to New Testament, New Covenant. From being under the law to where the law has shown us our sin, now we are brought to grace. We have a new habitation. In the Old Testament, David, King David conquered the Jebusite people that held Zion as a stronghold. And David brought the Ark of the Covenant to, to Zion. It represented God's holy habitation. Psalm 132, 13, it says that the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. It's a resting place where he dwelled and desired. Solomon moved the ark of the, to, to the temple that was built on Mount Moriah, that it expanded the vision of what Zion was and meant. It, it's God's presence is represented in Zion. Jerusalem is represented in Zion. Psalm 50 verse 10 is a prophecy that out of Zion, perfection, the perfection of beauty and God shines forth. Psalm 50, verse 2, Isaiah 46, 13, I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. What does that mean? It means Christ was to come in Jerusalem and die there for our sins. God is unapproachable out of Sinai, and he's utterly approachable out of Zion. Stand forgiven because of Zion. Psalm 133.3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls from the mountains of Zion. For, the, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, physical Zion is a picture of heaven for us and for the author of Hebrews. I want us to just take a trip up into heaven with what is described here. It's amazing. You've... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. If heaven is about anything, it's about God. I want you to know that. There's a lot of people who have claimed to have visions of heaven, even over the last 20 years, children, um, books written. People have accidents on bridges and then for 20 minutes go to supposed heaven. And I've read some of that material and I search for this kind of vision of God that someone would see and things don't typically square. Typically people talk about their vision of heaven being um, a reunion with old friends or family members, lost loved ones or angels, but people typically don't talk about God being there who is holy. Let me reassure you, God is as big as he was at Sinai in heaven He's as awful and awesome in heaven as he revealed himself on Sinai. But this God, as big as he is for the believer, is not a threat. That's what we want. We want God 
that big who's not a threat. With the virus, you want God that big without the threat. You want the grace of God from a God that big. Does that make sense? Everybody wants to dumb God down so that they can feel self-assured within themselves. They want to reassure themselves that this buddy God or this this uh, paternal father God or this this idea of God being casual is safe enough. And so I feel good about myself because I know this God and he's all grace and all mercy and it has nothing to do with his holiness. And so I'm fine, right? That's fallacious. God is our heavenly father, but he is the heavenly father as described in the Old Testament and is described in the New Testament in the same way. He's that big. He's awesome. He's the big God that we need. The trend of preaching has done a disservice to who God is and it dumbs God down and it, it basically neuters God's grace for you. We need this kind of God, this kind of grace. Big God, no threat. Just quickly, just running through this vision of heaven. It's the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in Revelation. It's 10,000s upon 10,000s of angels. We can't count them like counting the stars. They're in festal gathering. Why? Because they're rejoicing over believers who are being saved. Luke 15 talks about the joy in heaven over someone who repents. Angels are there, but they're not threatening. They are threatening sometimes in accounts in the scripture. We know that. We know that. They wipe things out. But in heaven, they're celebrating with us, for us, on behalf of Christ. That's the vision of heaven. Verse 23 says, and to the assembly, this is us. We're not left out of this vision. To the assembly, that word assembly is ecclesia. It's church, to the church of the firstborn. We are the church under the head of Christ in heaven. Your identity is in Christ in heaven. Why is it in Christ? Because you were cut down by the law, you repented, and then Christ clothed you with his righteousness. He made you his son. He put the festal robe on you, put the signet ring on you. He restored you. He brought you to heaven, and you are in the community, the assembly there of the firstborn under his headship. Firstborn means the inheritor of all things. Christ is the ultimate firstborn. He's the ultimate prototokos because he created everything. Colossians 1 says... But at the same time, though Colossians 1.15 calls him the Prototokos, we are under that headship. And so we are co-inheritors in heaven. It's amazing. Heaven is a place where we are enrolled, it says. It says that we are, we are enrolled as the assembly, enrolled in heaven. We're on heaven's registry. We're supposed to be there. We're the little boy finding out whether he made the cut, looking at the list in the hallway. Am I on the team? Am I in the club? There's my name. I'm enrolled there. You're there. Why are you there? Why do you get to be there where God is holy? Because God, the judge of all, he's that big. He's the judge. And to the spirits, that's who we are in heaven, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You're there because God made you able to be there. He enabled that. He perfected you through Christ. He gave you a right standing. Where is that fleshed out? Well, verse 24, and to Jesus, Jesus at the right hand of the father, our advocate, the one who died 2,000 years ago in Zion, Jerusalem. That bloodshed 
sacrifice is forever applied to us through Christ as our mediator. The high priest giving us advocacy forever and ever. His blood speaks on our behalf. Look, two bloods are speaking here. It's interesting. Two blood shedding. It says the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood speaks vengeance. Abel's blood speaks of Cain's guilt, right? Cain offered the unworthy sacrifice and then was so guilty, which is the perfect example of that stage that this church was falling into. They felt guilty about their sin. They wanted to run away from grace. They wanted to reject the gospel. Life was getting too hard. And so they were tending towards and trending toward being like Esau. And the author says, resist that compromise. That is not the way to go. Don't let the law harden your heart, be broken by the law and run to grace. And a Christian does that. A Christian snaps out of it and goes, whoa, okay, I'm following Christ again. A non-Christian who is being converted is struck by the law and says, whoa, I'm acting like Esau and I was never a believer in the first place. And so I'm going to run towards grace. That's what this is talking about. Christ's blood is better. Christ's blood doesn't just say a law was broken. That's Abel's blood. It shows the guilt of sin. This is a better word that takes us from law to grace, where the blood of Jesus clothes us, covers us, gives us grace, mercy, peace, acceptance, and hope. I remember sitting with two counselees one time, and they were living in sin. They were living in adultery, hard-hearted adultery. I said, what's wrong? I was looking at the woman and she was confessing this. I said, what is wrong? And just out of her heart, she she said, guilt. Just screamed it out. The blood of Christ counters that and says, grace. It's what it's shouting. Heaven boasts of a big God. A God whom we need not shrink back in fear or terror. Yes, there'll be scrutiny when we stand before the Lord, but we are clothed in Christ, blood and grace. The world is fearful. They are looking for answers. They need the big God that we can promote and talk about. Are you still under the law? Are you under judgment? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clothed in his righteousness. Come to grace. God's going to see us through this trial now and in the future and all the way into eternity. Trust the big God of the Bible. Trust in grace.